0: This is FinTech Takes, the podcast keeping you in the loop on all the latest FinTech trends, news, and ideas. I'm Alex Johnson, creator of the FinTech Takes newsletter, your host and self confessed FinTech nerd. Let's go! Hello, and welcome to FinTech Takes. My name is Alex Johnson, and I am thrilled to be joined by a really special guest today. You may know him on Twitter as FinTech Junkie. You may also know him as the uh, founding partner and chief investment officer at QED Investors, Frank Robin. Frank, thanks for joining me. Happy to be here. Awesome. Well, um, before we get into the uh, sort of main topics that we have for today's show, I think it would be beneficial if you could spend a couple of minutes giving a little bit of background on yourself. Like I mentioned, I think a lot of people know you as uh, Fintech Junkie on Twitter from all of your great threads that you post. Hopefully, most of those folks also know that you uh, are the chief investment officer at QED, which is a a firm that if you haven't looked at them and their portfolio companies, it's really, really great. And they've been in space for a long time. But even before that, you obviously have a very long history in financial services. I'd love it if you could get into that a little bit as well. Sure.
1: So I'll follow my uh, own belief that no one is more than two minutes interesting. So I will uh, (laughs) try to keep my background brief. Yeah, so I've been in and around the financial services world for 29 years now. The first act of my career was helping to build what became Capital One. So it was Signet Bank at the time. Uh, and there was a grand strategy to create what became Capital One, which was an analytic way of building a credit card business, a direct to consumer credit card business that eventually turned into a full blown bank. Um, so uh, Capital One was arguably one of the first fintechs, of fintech of the 1990s, which does date me quite a bit. <laughs> and I did that with Nigel Morris, who was one of the co-founders of Capital One. Mm -hmm. Uh, He left in 2004. I left in 2005 to actually go build a student lending company. It gave me the bug for startups, and it was a very interesting time in my life. But Nigel and I joined back up a few years later to form what became QED Investors. And for the past 15 years, uh, we've been investing in fintech companies around the globe. We have about 200 investments under our belt at this point. And a team of over 20 investment professionals globally looking at, you know, everything that is fintech
0: or touches fintech. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we're going to get into a bunch of those areas. Uh, Congratulations, by the way. I think that was just under two minutes. So that was perfect. Um, You know, the first thing I wanted to ask you about, actually, is... um, kind of goes back to I think the first time that you and I actually spoke was back in 2021. I was writing a piece for the newsletter on the sort of rising trend of banks acquiring fintech companies and kind of termed it at the time the bank fintech acquisition boom. Now, of course, if I had known better, I might have suggested that uh, there'd be even more acquisitions to come once the sort of overall macro environment changed. I think if banks had known better, they might have saved a little bit more of their powder for when valuations had come down and they could have done more shopping. But one of the companies that I mentioned uh, just sort of in an offhand way, I really didn't spend any time on it in the piece, was a uh, company that J.P. Morgan Chase acquired called Frank. The Frank has nothing to do with Frank Rotman, just to be clear. Yeah, my
1: my, my favorite thing is seeing headlines that say Frank is fraud. And I'm like, wow, this is just this is not good.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, that we need a disclaimer very clearly in there that like Frank has no association with that Frank. But, um, you know, it was really interesting being able to actually go all the way back to that piece that I had written, where I really just kind of tossed Frank in there with all the other I think Chase had made maybe four or five acquisitions at that point in just 2021. So they were really scooping up a lot of different fintech companies. There were other banks that were doing that as well. But, you know, Frank, I don't know that I've um, seen you really uh, comment or give your thoughts on that acquisition. So first, I was hoping if you could just sort of share your high level thoughts on the JPMorgan Chase Frank acquisition, the reporting that's come out around sort of the alleged fraud or sort of misrepresentation and just what your thoughts were on that.
1: So I, I won't comment too much on the product itself besides saying that i think you know banks are doing an okay but not great job at finding features that were disguised as companies and then buying them so that you know the company called the bank could distribute them in a more efficient way and bundle them with a variety of products and services that they already had and run that product efficiently
2: mm-hmm. and i
1: think you know frank is an example of uh, a company that really was more of a product Uh, than anything else and very difficult to figure out how they would have hit escape velocity as an independent public company, as an example, you know, felt much more like a product or a feature. So it eventually did need to be housed under the umbrella of a bigger organization. And, you know, I think there are a lot of companies that look like that, where there's nothing wrong with starting a company that really is a product disguised as a company. It's just your fate is not to be sold you know, in the public market uh, and traded in the multi-billion dollar valuation range, it's much more to eventually be acquired, you know, by a larger player that runs lots of products and distributes lots of products, you know, through their customer base. So I think, you know, Frank was an example of a company that looked more like that. And, You know, I think the fraud is just such an interesting topic. And at some point I'll write about, you know, spotting fraud, preventing fraud, like what you do as a VC or what you do as an acquirer, you know, try to prevent these things from happening. But the reality is, look, there's a spectrum that starts with an idea and eventually ends up with a company with tangible value. You know, when a company is just an idea, they're trading in words, right? They're trading in thoughts. And when a company is real, they're trading in facts, right? And these are two very different things. And there's a spectrum that kind of uh, connects the dots between, you know, wishes and dreams and then a company with intrinsic value and, you know, real provable things. And, you know, I think the story arc on, you know, fraud in the financial services space is when should it have been spotted? When should controls have been in place? Because the reality is definitionally fraud is about someone lying to you, right? And the business of lying can be done either in a very basic way or a very sophisticated way. Mm -hmm. And the more sophisticated, you know, the lying, the harder it is to actually catch.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And, you know, you really have to think hard about the job of a venture capitalist, like, we live and die by information that's given to us by founders right? So we ask them for information all the time. And guess how it shows up? It shows up in spreadsheets. It shows up in PowerPoint decks. And we look at that information and we examine it and we say, oh, the company's doing well. Look, you know, cell E16 in the spreadsheet, like says they're doing well. So the company is doing well. And you have a choice to either try to prove that piece of information or trust that piece of information, right? And there's going to be a balance between how much effort you put into forensic diligence in proving things Mm -hmm. You know, versus just trusting, you know, that the information that's being sent to you is, is accurate. And when companies are very young, there's not a lot to protect. Right? So if you have 10 customers and $100,000 worth of revenue, like there's no enterprise value to that thing. Mm -hmm. So when they're sharing information with you, like you have to ask yourself, is it worth the effort? Right? Which, by the way, is distracting to the company, it costs real money, like these aren't free things. -hmm. To figure out if that $100,000 of revenue is real. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: If the company has $100 million of revenue and you're about to write a $50 million check into the company, like there actually is some enterprise value to that thing and probably worth protecting. So, again, I think you have to start with the fact that, you know, there's a spectrum between trying to trade in ideas and trade in facts. There is a difference between something with no intrinsic value and something where you are protecting value and doing your fiduciary duty to make sure that you're representing the company well to future capital providers or someone who's buying it. So I'll, I'll pause there for a second, but I think, you know, the challenge with a situation like Frank mm-hmm. is that there is a sophisticated scheme to lie the founder actually hired someone to put together email addresses in a form and format, you know, that would pass the scrutiny of someone looking at spreadsheets if they sent it to you. And if JP Morgan is part of their process said, we want to email your customer base to see if they're real, like, I don't know if the company would let them do that. Like, for what purpose? Why would you be bothering my customers? Right? So I do have ideas on how you prevent things like this and what JP Morgan could have done. And there are steps that you know, in a good acquisition process or a good diligence process from a venture capitalist could prevent these things. But it's not as simple as an outsider would think, right? To just look at things because sophisticated lying is sophisticated lying. Like it's very hard to catch if they're intentional.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. It's I think that's a really good point. And one of the things that I've sort of struggled with in parsing this story is, you know, to look at it from like Chase's perspective. Yeah, like, what did you want them to do differently? And how might they have done things differently in order to get a different outcome? And, you know, obviously, there was a sophisticated attempt uh, to sort of cover up what was true. I also was fascinated by, I think it was Mike Mayo at Wells Fargo who asked uh Jamie Diamond on their last earnings call specifically about this story. And um, you know, Jamie Diamond and Mike Mayo have a bit of a contentious relationship, so I always sort of make sure to tune in whenever he asks a question, particularly on something like this. It's a little
1: boxing match,
0: yeah. Yeah, a little boxing match. And it, you know, it was actually fairly tame from that perspective, but they kind of went back and forth on like what level of diligence is required here and what level of like, This thing happens sometimes. Like if we're going to step up to the plate, I think Jamie Diamond said something to the effect: if we're going to step up to the plate 300 times a year, we're not going to hit every single one, right? And there are going to be some strikeouts, and maybe there'll be some sort of embarrassing strikeouts. And so, I guess I'm curious from your perspective, particularly given that you've obviously worked in and around very large banks. Like, what do you think the outlines of a, a good due diligence process looks like, and what do you think the sort of unknowable unknowns are that you just have to sort of accept if you're going to be in this business. So again, I think the level of diligence and effort it should be
1: commensurate with what it is that you're protecting, right? So if you have an embarrassing failure for a seed check that you write into a company that hasn't even hit the market yet, the question is, what are you trying to protect? And it might be embarrassing. They might say, I talked to 10 customers, here's my pipeline Like, we are going to sign a bunch of them in the next six months. They might not have talked to any of those customers. They might be made up names that they gave you through a spreadsheet. Like, that's embarrassing. And through your diligence process, you're trying to understand the character of the founders, and you're trying to figure out, you know, uh, your view of whether their future outlook is real or not. But you could get fooled very easily. If you had a multi-billion dollar acquisition, that embarrassment, you know, borders on fiduciary negligence at some point. Uh, When large checks are getting written into companies like Theranos as an example, like the fact that no blood tests were done, which could have been done incredibly easily to prove that whether the technology actually worked or didn't work, that's fiduciary. It's just an oversight that I think is negligence at some point, right? So again, there's going to be a spectrum. But what I would say is for an acquirer, the real issue is that you see a sanitized snapshot of the company. Right. Almost definitionally, the company is being packaged, right? There is a diligence process. There is a data room. Everything is very curated and very scrubbed. They are representing the company as it exists then in time, right? So it really is a snapshot of the company and you've got to think about it the way you would think about putting filters on like an Instagram picture. Like people are very thoughtful about how information is presented when they're presenting a company for sale. I love that analogy. Actually, that's a great way of thinking about it. Yeah, all of the signal is actually in the video, not in the snapshot. And when I think about, you know, detecting and preventing fraud or understanding if what you're getting is real or understanding if the projections are real, the signal is in the video, right? Connecting the dots about how the business was built, all the steps that were taken along the way, what was learned, how often did the team misstep? You know, are things going right every single month and up and to the right? Are they beating forecasts? Are they missing forecasts? Like there's so much information that's inherent in the company if you actually were there along the ride. Right. And that's where insiders have an advantage over new investors in a company because you're part of in some ways, you're not just watching a video. You're actually part of the video. Right. You are helping the company and you're participating in the movie itself. So I think about this all the time. And, you know, it's why actually I think venture capitalists and acquirers don't like bankers because bankers are the ones putting the filters like on the business. And what you want to do is get back to the people who built the business. You want to get the bankers out of the way. You want to get to the actual people who built the business. And you want to listen to the narrative to make sure it's consistent. Right. So if I were looking at Frank as an example, and there's this email list of, you know, four plus million names. yeah. Like You would want to know what the go-to-market motion was to get those 4 million-plus names. You would want to know monthly how fast is this list growing? What campaigns are you running? How are you bringing customers on board? You would want to talk to their head of marketing and say, what worked? What didn't work? What campaigns did you run that just absolutely failed and why? Which ones are working? How deep are these channels? And, you know, through the questioning of the chief marketing officer, as an example, you know, if there's fraud, like it would have to be really sophisticated fraud for them to create a narrative, not just a snapshot, but a narrative that was consistent all the way through where you go, wow, here's how they got their 4 million customers. And now I know a lot more about how the company was built and the prospects for the future because I can watch the trajectory. So I think the failing in situations like this are believing the snapshot and not doing the forensic work to talk to lots of people within the organization, right? Because fraud is harder to commit, the more people you talk to, like the narrative becomes less and less consistent, you know, as you get into other people in the organization. And, you know, the understanding of the video is actually paramount to understanding the forecast in the future and what things are worth because, you know, I say this all the time, the value of a company is a function of the intrinsic value of the company and the option value of the company in the future. And unless you understand both of those components, you don't know what to pay. And in order to understand the intrinsic value of the business, you have to understand how it's performing now. To understand the option value of the business, you need to understand the trajectory of the company. You need to understand the quality of the team. You have to understand what brand permission you know, the company has. Like There are a whole bunch of things that require a lot more work. And again, I think in order to properly do work, you need to do the work around the video, not just the snapshot.
0: Absolutely. Well, and it reminds me of sort of an interesting counterexample, which was one that I wrote about in the the newsletter as well, that same piece from 2021, which was the, the fifth third acquisition of Provide. And I spoke to folks at Fifth Third about that. And one of the things that I was struck by was that they and it kind of goes to your point about it being a video rather than a snapshot, they had worked with Provide for years, right before the acquisition. they had a partnership in place, they had bought loans that Provide was making, they'd been able to see the credit quality of those loans and how they performed over time, and they'd gotten to know the team personally very, very well, right? And so I can't remember exactly how this was phrased to me when I was asking about it, but someone told me something to the effect of, yeah, actually, one of the hardest things we had to do when we were contemplating actually making an acquisition of Provide was thinking about how we would have to change our company. To allow provide to continue to do what it does well within our four walls, right? So it was much more introspective trying to figure out how it melds into our organization. But it was clear that, like, by the time they'd gotten to that decision point, all those other questions about, like, who is the founding team? How do they operate? How comfortable are we with their business, their product, the trajectory of what they're building? Like, all of those had been answered a while ago. And it was much more a function of, pricing, you know, figuring out what the option value is for the future, figuring out how it's going to succeed within our four walls, we'll be able to retain talent, like all of those things became the new problem set. The old problem set was something that they had kind of worked through. So to your point, I mean, they treated it much more as a VC, I think does in terms of being along for the ride for a while before that acquisition happened.
1: That's right. And um, look, that that was a very good acquisition. It actually was one of our companies sold to Fifth Third, we know Fifth Third well high quality teams on both sides. And,
0: you know, they got to
1: know each other over multiple years. So it's definitely a playbook
0: that can work. Absolutely. Last question on this topic before we change gears, just sort of in your crystal ball for 2023, what do you think the sort of fintech acquisition landscape looks like? Do you see a lot of banks continuing to make acquisitions? I think we've already seen a couple of larger fintech companies snap up sort of newer, smaller ones. Do you see that kind of uh, accelerating? What's your sort of view of the acquisition landscape for the coming year? I'm actually not Keen on prognosticating in
1: general, because I think making blanket statements about an industry loses the nuance that ultimately every entity is, it operates in a very particular way and has a set of goals that it cares about.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: What I will say is I think there are some sophisticated entities that have their radar on mm-hmm. and they are looking right now for, you know, product companies with very high, quality teams that they could snap up at prices that are affordable, you know, given the environment. You know, I I wrote a, a piece not too long ago, where like my description of kind of the chaos in the market with free flowing capital over the past few years, was that Darwin went on vacation, and now he's back. So there's only one reason why companies end up closing shop, you know, prematurely, and it's when they run out of cash. And, you know, I think there are going to be a lot of companies that have potential. Uh, They've proven that they can do something in the market, but they need a lot more cash in order to basically continue operating. They're a long way from being self-sufficient. And a lot of these companies could be snapped up by larger entities that have built-in distribution or the ability to handle the burn of these companies while they scale. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a natural fit between, you know, some of these high quality product companies and some of the acquirers that could buy functionality and some early traction in a market. Mm -hmm. The question is whether those acquisitions will happen. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And, you know, I think the answer is going to be very mixed. Acquiring a company is a skill like anything else, right? Integrating it so that you actually get the benefits that you project is a skill, just like anything else. And what you know, I tend to coach companies on, if you believe that in your future, you are going to be acquiring your way into new S curves and new, you know, revenue streams, Mm -hmm. you have to start practicing, right? You don't show up one day and decide you're gonna plunk down a billion dollars for an acquisition. Like you have to start with a small acquisition. You have to actually spin up a diligence team. You have to see if you can actually put the contracts in place that get the founders, you know, and the investors of that company excited to sign on the dotted line. You have to deal with the integration efforts on the other side and, you know, make sure that you don't sync the thing that you actually just bought. So until you've practiced it, the chances of you doing anything large or doing it with frequency are very low. So, you know, I would ask you to just look into your crystal ball and you can see the firms that are acquiring, you know who they are. Yeah. And the chances are they will be doing more of it because they have the muscle they've practiced and they're going to be some good companies to snap up or at least good products and product teams. But the thought of a bank suddenly waking up in this environment and doing their first acquisition when, you know, pricing is depressed and they've never really done this before. Like that's hard. Yeah. So I think there's a limited set of known buyers
0: and they're going to be looking around. Um, It's funny that you mentioned that you don't make prognostications and that you have sort of a nuanced way of looking at these things, because I knew that. And that's why for this next segment of the podcast, uh, I decided to flip things around instead of asking you to predict things that are going to happen in 2023, which I knew you'd say no to. I've come up with a different way of tackling this, which is what I'm calling a bucket of cold first principles. So... um, you are uh have a very well deserved reputation for being a very rigorous thinker in fintech. So what I was hoping to do was play a little game where I can run some predictions, maybe somewhat cliched predictions that either I or other people in the fintech ecosystem have made about what's going to happen this year or in the next couple of years, and then have you respond with agree, disagree, or it depends. And I'm guessing that every one of your answers will be it depends, because again, lots of nuance in all of these. Uh, But more importantly, sort of walk us through how you would approach thinking about that from kind of a first principles perspective and how you would sort of pull apart that question. I'm game. Okay, let's do this thing. So, first one, very um, clickbaity headline. This is one that would get a lot of opens if I was to do this as a newsletter. Chat GPT will revolutionize the way that consumers manage their money. So, I, I should write
1: a tweet storm on this topic
0: because it's so topical right now. So, um, <laughs> maybe I'll
1: do that soon. So, let's start with the technology itself. So, Chat GPT is amazing. It is a a very interesting new technology. And, you know, if you play with it for a little bit, you actually can see the power and talk about prognosticating the future, just, you can see how if this gets a little bit better, like it could serve a lot of purposes. And by the way of background, if I go back 30 years to when I was in college, I studied artificial intelligence. So I mean, that was almost, my background was systems engineering and artificial intelligence. And wrote code that ended up, you know, as part of the Mars Explorer mission, like, so this is a big piece of my background and something that I think and care a lot about. But for the longest time, like computing power wasn't uh, where it needed to be. And the data sets weren't there to train these AI models. But now we've gotten to a point where it's actually functional, and you can project that it's going to be valuable. Now, will it be transformative in financial services is really the question. And if so, where? So I would think about the first stage of, you know, creating value out of this new artificial intelligence technology and capability. And you have to think about how important an accurate answer is, right? So thing number one, that's going to govern how this rolls out. If you need 100% accuracy, then chat GPT and all the artificial intelligence technology is not ready yet. Like the last couple of percent to get perfect accuracy of an answer is really hard. So if you want a chat GPT to do your taxes for you, where it has to be accurate, and if it's not accurate, you go to jail or you get fined, like there's an issue there, right? It's it's actually not going to be ready for prime time anytime soon. Like for basic taxes, maybe it will get there at some point, but complex situations that require 100% accuracy, like the technology just isn't ready. Mm -hmm. The same thing in a highly regulated environment having a professional say that something is compliant is something that you can't rely on artificial intelligence to certify. Right. And in the world of financial services, like there's so much regulation where you have to make sure that advice that you're giving or models that you're implementing, et cetera, et cetera, like are compliant. Mm -hmm. And it's a very, very difficult standard to pass. So when I get excited about ChatGPT, I get excited about, its ability to write you know its ability to synthesize information its ability to make lists its ability to take 10 20 30 sources of data and condense it into something that actually is meaningful mm-hmm. instead of you having to click you know to search with some words basically asking google to be your source of truth having 10 websites surfaced have you click through to each one learn a little bit from each one being able to synthesize and then refine and synthesize and refine, I think it's going to be an incredible tool for people who are, you know, trying to learn things or trying to create things. But when it comes to approved decline in pricing decisions for credit or for financial recommendations for investment products, like these aren't things that ChatGPT is going to be ready to do anytime soon.
0: No, that makes sense. I think for what it's worth, I agree with you. Um... I think that we get very excited about this technology. I think there probably will be a resurgence in sort of interest in chatbots, in quotes, which tends to sort of surge up and down, uh, particularly among sort of smaller banks in terms of, oh, this could be our digital transformation strategy. And I I always sort of chuckle whenever something new like ChatGPT breaks through the mainstream consciousness and everyone's talking about it, because there will be a wave of people who invest in something that looks sort of similar to it because they think it's going to pull them into the future but I don't know that I see any sort of obvious areas, particularly, as you said, ones that touch areas where you have to have a high degree of certainty anytime soon. So I think I agree. Um, All right, ready for the next one? Sure. Elon Musk's plan to turn Twitter into a fintech super app will succeed. Um, It depends. And I would probably err on the side of
1: saying it won't. Okay. So look, the movement of money is a major component of banks and you know banking services. It's one of five major pillars of things that banks do. The movement of money is where a lot of platforms are making their money. The core product is something that they sell for hopefully more than they manufacture it for. But a lot of these firms are now making more money moving money than they are in their core product. I mean, look at Shopify as an example of a giant you know uh, fintech that's disguised. They make massive amounts of money mm-hmm. just moving money between you know the small business owners that are on the platform and the consumers that are buying products right so it's a playbook that makes a lot of sense i think the problem with twitter now is that it's neither twix nor tween like there isn't a coherent strategy and i think the strategy is going to get in the way of layering payments functionality on top of it so i think the platform actually has more core problems That it needs to solve. And if they start to go down the path of payments before they anchor their core product, then I think it's going to struggle in various forms and fashions. So, like, my feed has gotten incredibly jumbled, and you hear it all the time from people. And, you know, until they get the core product right, it's actually not time for them to think about, you know, moving money between constituencies because, you know, who knows, a lot of people might abandon the product or use it in a very different way. And, you know, that usage is going to dictate how you put payments in the flow.
0: I think that's a really good point, right? It's like, I mean, this is a somewhat silly analogy, but I mean, if you're building a house and you have all these grand designs for what you want the different rooms to look like, and oh, we're going to do this over here and over here, but your foundation is bad or not complete or not dry or whatever the case may be, you're just walking into a world of hurt if you try to do those things out of order. And to your point, there are lots of companies that have, sort of tacked on pillars from financial services onto their core business. But it usually the ones that succeed, it seems like, are done with a very strong alignment around how does this sort of strengthen the core thing that we do, whereas in Twitter's case, it seems more like, well, maybe this can be the core of what we do. And that seems to maybe be where there's a little bit of confusion. I would be remiss for our listeners if I didn't ask you to spell out the five pillars of what banks do, just so that if someone's listening to this, they can have Frank Rotman's list of the five pillars of what a bank does.
1: Yeah, I mean, there are are actually a lot of things that banks do, but they tend to fall in either the storage of money, which is deposits, the movement of money, which is payments, you know, the borrowing of money, which is lending, Mm -hmm. the investing of money, which is investments, and, you know, then the transference of risk, which is insurance, right? And banks can't necessarily do the insurance piece, but it's a pillar of financial institutions. Mm Mm-hmm. Of course, there's back office. Of course, there's treasury. There's a bunch of things that, you know, banks layer on. But when you think about the major pillars of what banks do, they tend to fall into those five categories.
0: Okay. Well, there you go, listeners. That's the list. Um, Okay, next one. Cash flow underwriting will displace the FICO score as the primary tool used to evaluate consumers' credit worthiness. You can put whatever time scale you want on this one. I actually disagree with that. Okay, good. So by way
1: of background, I was the first chief credit officer of Capital One way back when. So when it comes to credit underwriting, it's actually something that I I know a fair bit about. Yeah. And, you know, the challenge is in underwriting, what you are trying to do is to understand a a bunch of information and behaviors about an individual or a business, an entity, Mm-hmm that really fall into the ability to pay, the willingness to pay, the stability of income, or in the case of business, revenue, right? There are all these, if you talk about first principles, like the drivers of risk that need to be determined. And in order to determine those, you basically need truth files, right? So a source of truth about the inputs and a source of truth about the outputs. Mm -hmm. And you need to build statistical models that basically take all of these inputs and try to predict the outputs if you're dealing with statistical modeling. Mm -hmm. If you're dealing with another category of underwriting, which is basically zero loss underwriting, so you're looking to make decisions, you know, as if there is no risk in the entity, you're trying to prove to yourself that an entity or a person does not have any risk. And again, you need a truth file. Mm -hmm. And you need the ability to take that truth file, to do your work, to create a loan file that says, look, let me explain to you why this customer, this entity is going to be able to pay, right? So ability to pay, willingness to pay, stability of income or revenue. Mm -hmm. If you actually look at cash flow underwriting, it's actually very good at getting at a single thing, which is ability to pay now, right? So are you technically solvent? Or are you technically insolvent? If we added uh, additional burden on top of this entity or person, would they be able to make their payments? Mm-hmm. Right. And that is a yes, no answer. You can actually calculate it using cash flow. It's a very good truth file for now. But when you start to get into some of the other key components of risk, you know, the stability of income or revenue is a very important piece. Mm-hmm. And when you start to look at cash flow underwriting, you know, it's only as good as the length of the data set that you have right so if i'm looking at an individual if i'm ingesting 12 months worth of bank statements i have 12 months worth
0: of you know the stability of the income and just to be clear on that point uh, most aggregators that's a roughly what they're providing right when you're looking at the way that open banking at least in the us works right now you're not getting 10 years of cash flow history you're getting 12 months maybe a little more
1: 3 months to a year
0: yeah yeah and that might change
1: at some point but you know, the reality is like as a truth file, it is a much better truth file for now Mm -hmm. than what's happened in the past or the stability of now. When you start to look at items that are good predictors of stability in a consumer's case, the occupation they're in is a great example of something that has longevity to the predictive power of the thing. Mm -hmm. So, There are certain job families that if you actually look at the Bureau of Labor Statistics, like over a 30-year period, the unemployment rate for that profession is extraordinarily low. Mm -hmm. So teachers and nurses, as a great example, have incredibly low uh, unemployment rates. There are other professions that have fairly high unemployment rates, Mm -hmm. right? If you look at manual labor, like a lot of construction, you know, it goes through boom and bust cycles. If you look at plumbers, they go through boom and bust cycles. Like There are professions that actually have instability almost built into the ecosystem that they play. And you can imagine from a risk perspective, one is a safer risk than the other. And if you're making a one year loan, cash flow underwriting might be great. If you're making a 30 year mortgage, right, understanding the stability of income actually matters. Now, the reason why I bring this up is that cash flow underwriting obviously has a lot of benefits. It's about who are you today? you're not being penalized by things that have happened in the past. Yeah, You know, you are not being penalized by situations that have occurred in an industry in which you have a profession in the past. So there are a lot of criticisms, you know, of using that data. But by the way, it's very predictive data. But even using that data has its own flaws because of something called Reg B. So Reg B is all about fair lending. And there are a lot of reasons for fair lending that really stem from in the United States. If you actually go back in our history, like we weren't good to a lot of people over long periods of time, right? So there was a lot of mistreatment of minorities and underrepresented individuals in the banking ecosystem that goes back a hundred years, right? Like this is not something that's new. And because of the disparate treatment in the past, laws were put in place that you could not have disparate treatment going forward. The problem with Reg B is that ultimately, the way that Reg B is put in force is that it's not just about disparate treatment. It's about the actual outcomes. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, I cannot use a lot of information in statistical models because they correlate with protected classes that then would be adversely affected by decisions. hmm And again, there's a lot of good reasons for that in the ecosystem because of what's happened over history. Mm -hmm. But if you were to build a perfect zero one model, right, if you were perfectly to predict risk uh, that this person is going to be good or this person is going to charge off, you would actually be breaking the law. So you would violate a bunch of reg B issues if you had perfect models. Mm -hmm. So it's a very, very difficult topic, almost a third rail topic where statisticians are always trying to improve the models. Mm -hmm. statisticians are always looking for incremental signal, but Reg B is saying you have to pull some of that signal out because it will result in disparate treatment, you know, of protected classes. So again, it's a very complicated topic about how you improve models without triggering Reg B. And as a result, I think innovation has
0: stalled in the underwriting space in the U.S. I very much agree with everything you just said. I'll leave that one there because you covered it much better than I ever could. One more, if we can just uh, squeeze this one in for time. And it's related because we're still staying in the lending category, but it's um, buy now, pay later will prove to be a sustainable competitor to credit cards. So I I laugh at this.
1: Um, (laughs) When buy
0: now, pay later
1: kind of took off, I started to scratch my head. And I said, definitionally, buy now, pay later is credit. Like, that is the definition of credit. Yep. So everyone's like, no, it's this magical new thing. I'm like, it's credit. You're lending people money and you're creating install. you're trading cash today for a flow of payments in the future that have variability and volatility associated with it. And you make that trade because it's yield generating, right? Like, that is what lending is about. Yeah. So, I mean, I laugh at buy, not pay later. I mean, we have invested in uh, companies in the space. Green Sky was in our portfolio. Uh, Back in the Capital One days, I helped manage an elective medical finance company that was a buy now, pay later, you know, company.
0: Not a new concept for those who are like newer to the fintech space. Like we've been doing this type of point of sale financing for a while.
1: It has been a long time out there. And if you actually go back to retail lending, there's a whole bunch of codes where retailers do not have to actually have a lending license if they're going to lend in a small number of installments. Like, so this has been around forever. And in fact, if you actually look in countries outside of the US, especially where the middle class is still emerging, yeah, the number one way of getting credit would be
0: to go to a retailer and for the retailer to break things down into installment payments for them. Well, Brazil, buy now, pay later is like, it's not called that, but it's been around since the 50s. It is the
1: number one source of credit, you know, for individuals in the country. So like, it's just an interesting concept to say it's going to compete with credit cards. I think What's happened is point of sale finance Mm
2: -hmm.
1: has really seen a a resurgence because with so much more commerce being done online and being able to have real time decisioning and embedding these decisions, you know, at the point of sale. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: I think that is really the innovation, Mm -hmm. right? So will that compete with credit cards where new credit could be issued at point of sale, you know, breaking things down into installments, so that you know the thing that you are buying can be paid off in a reasonable period of time and you can budget for it? Yeah, I mean, look, I think a lot of financial service products, especially loans, are sold in terms of monthly payment. Right, You buy your car based on monthly payment, right, if you're going to finance it. And buy now, pay later is really a function of saying, you know your budget, you know how much free cash flow you have. If you buy this thing, it will cost you an extra $100 a month. Are you interested? Mm Mm-hmm. And I think that concept is a very powerful one, you know, from a psychological standpoint, as well as a reduction in friction standpoint. And I think it's going to survive
0: from this point forward. Um, and for people who've been around in the ecosystem for a while, shout out to Bill Me Later, which was doing this exact thing online well before Buy Now Pay Later became a craze. So it is an old idea. Okay, Frank, uh, before I let you go, um, one of the things I like to do with uh, special guests that hop on the podcast is a quick lightning round where I will hold you to extremely quick answers. Are you ready to run through a couple? Um, all it. All right, let's do it. So first question, why is your handle on Twitter fintech junkie? I know one thing, and I know it incredibly well.
1: I know very little about just about anything else, so I guess I'm addicted to the thing I know.
0: Awesome, I love that. Uh, who is your favorite author?
1: Uh, I read a lot of science fiction, so it would be too easy to serve up some uh, well-known authors, but I'll go the other way, which is from a fiction standpoint. I like Tom Robbins.
0: Tom Robbins. Okay. What is your favorite
1: NFT that you own? So that's like asking me which of my children uh, I know. I know. My favorite. So I know. I'll serve up three. I'm actually a formal advisor to the Quirkies project, and that's one that I absolutely adore. Bears is an entertainment company in the making, and Ben might be one of the most talented entrepreneurs in the NFT space. And then Menji, which is an art-based project, and uh, he's an artist that I think will get discovered someday, and he reminds me of like a modern-day Keith Herring.
0: Wow. Okay. Those are great. Name one legacy company in financial services, could be a bank, a vendor, whoever, that you feel is underappreciated today. Uh, Believe
1: it or not, J.P. Morgan. Ooh, nice. Controversial pick. The complexity of running a bank the size of J.P. Morgan, if you have not been in banking, you can't appreciate the challenge of what Jamie Dimon is basically doing right now. He might be the best banker of our generation. And again, I I am critical of some of the things JP Morgan does. I've actually written a letter to JP, basically to Jamie Dimon, responding to his letter to the fintech community. So I have my own criticisms, but I think he is potentially the best banker of the modern era, managing one of the most complex businesses on the face of the planet.
0: Um, And final one, if you could wave a magic wand and instantly change one thing about the financial services industry, what would it be? That one is incredibly tough. Um, I know, I know.
1: I wish consumers would make rational decisions. And I wish the buyers of financial service products from an enterprise standpoint would just make rational decisions. Buy the things they need to buy, deploy the things they need to deploy, and consumers get their math right so they're buying the things they should buy.
0: That is a great uh, wave of magic wand one because that's never going to happen, but that is a great (laughs) one to pick. Um, Frank, thank you so much for uh, joining me for FinTech Takes. This has been so much fun. Happy to be here. Thank you for listening to this episode of FinTech Takes. Stay up to date with emerging companies and the latest FinTech trends by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love FinTech Takes, please tell a friend.